0: Hi, I'm actor and comedian Griffin Newman. And I'm film critic David Sims. Together, we host Blank Check, a movie podcast where week by week, we overanalyze directors' complete filmographies.
1: In each new series, we discuss filmmakers who experience early success and are issued a series of Blank Checks by Hollywood to make their own crazy passion projects.
0: Now, sometimes those checks clear, and sometimes they bounce, baby.
1: We're joined each week by incredible guests, including actors, writers, and directors. So you can follow Blank Check with Griffin and David on Spotify for new episodes every Sunday. Hello
2: there. It's Jamila Jamel. Are you by any chance listening to this podcast promo while out on a walk? If so, good for you. That's going to make both your mind and your body feel better. On my podcast, I Weigh, this month, we're going to be exploring mental health and talking to amazing guests about other things that you can do to make yourself feel better with guests like Simon Sinek from The Optimism Company, therapist Vienna Farron, comedian Neil Brennan, and more. Listen to I Weigh wherever you get your podcasts.
1: The year, 1954. I could have been a compender. Oh, shit. Sorry. Contender, Contender, the movie on the waterfront. Hey everybody, welcome to Unspooled. I am Paul Shear. Amy Nicholson is away at TIFF, that is the Toronto International Film Festival, watching tons and tons of movies, which means I am alone here for the first part of the show. But she will be joining me shortly to talk about today's feature presentation on the waterfront. But we are going to first recap a little bit about last week's episode, which of course was Lawrence of Arabia. Um, People, you had a lot to say about Lawrence of Arabia, Uh, and I think a lot of people came into this film feeling the same way that I felt about it, that it felt like homework. Some people actually got through for the first time. Other people gave up at intermission. Um, I think what we kind of found was that there is a film for different types of people. I mean, some people hated Gone with the Wind and loved this. They love this, and they hate Gone with the Wind. We're starting to feel that there's an epic for everyone. And, uh, as we continue on with this list, I always want to remind you to head on over to Podswag.com and check out our amazing unspooled poster. We can follow along with us. It is beautifully designed by Scott. See, it actually is a piece of art. You can go pick it up there and, uh, we threatened it and now we actually did it. We do have Jimmy Stewart BDE shirts in our unspooled store. That's unspooled.com. Uh, that's slash unspooled. You can check out I Love Lepers, the shirt, or of course the Jimmy Stewart BDE shirt. All right, but back to Lawrence of Arabia. Paul Regan wrote that we talked about Ray Fiennes playing T.E. Lawrence in an early 90s sequel, but apparently he's playing him again next year in the Kingsman prequel, The King's Man. Um, this makes me extremely excited. I saw a picture of it, and it also makes me wonder if Ray Fiennes actually has like a you know a little spot in his heart for uh, T. E. Lawrence. And I'd love to see how he's portrayed in that film. Is he going to be uh, the bitter you know? conflicted person that we saw at the beginning of Lawrence of Arabia, or is he going to maybe be a little bit more adventurous? I mean, I'm sure because it's the Kingsman, he's going to be on the back of a camel with like a sword slicing down uh, Brits because, you know, that's what they do in those movies. And I love them. James Mirabello uh, at Video Pub wrote, I just want to share my two cents about the last shot of Lawrence of Arabia. It's just a close-up of his face, but it's through a dirty windshield, and it's hard to make him out clearly. That's because nothing about him is clear anymore. Lawrence is utterly lost, just a completely broken man who has lost everything about himself. He's just a shell. And I think Lean illustrates that beautifully with that last shot. I just think it's brilliant. And, you know, I didn't think about that. It's an interesting contrast to have that last shot of the film, especially with the first shot of the film, where he is kind of free and you see him through the goggles. Um, I love that you picked up on that. It's very perceptive. And I think also helps illustrate what we were talking about when we were dissecting the film. You know, this is a character that became morally corrupted. And I think it's subtle because we think about the sweeping vistas, but truthfully, we are watching this person be propped up to someone who he wasn't and then feel the weight of that as well uh, for positive and, and negative. So, Uh, I really love that interpretation of the ending. There's another thing that was brought up uh, on the message boards. St. Amp brought it up. One thing missed in the episode was the I once had an honor to shake his hand man at Lawrence's funeral is the same medical officer yelling, outrageous, who slaps him in the Damascus hospital. That's why Lawrence thinks they've met before during the handshake scene. It's a pretty great ironic payoff for his indignation outside the funeral to his absolute disgust with Lawrence's hysterical laughing at the hospital. I only caught this on my most recent re- watch on the big screen last weekend. Uh, that was a little cool callback and they put some screen grabs there. Um, and this is a point that I thought was actually very astute. Saucy Upstart wrote, my biggest takeaway from Lawrence of Arabia is that John Williams owes his entire career to that score. Um, I wouldn't go that far, but you can definitely see the influence, uh, in John Williams epic scores, from Lawrence of Arabia, which has an amazing, amazing score. I've been thinking about that score a lot lately. Um, it really is a powerful piece of music, and uh, it's actually really interesting to see John Williams next to, that, especially in the Raiders uh, score. That really has a lot of similarities. And finally, Kyle Copen writes, you have to admire and be in awe of the ambition of this film. Not just the cast, the location, and the one-of-a-kind visuals, but a biop where the main character isn't full of shit. He has a messiah complex and a bloodlust. Can you imagine a modern music biop that would dare to lean into its main character's negative traits and not just in the, oh, he has one flaw that undermines him and eventually overcomes in the third act kind of way? No, I think that that's actually very true. I think we don't often see heroes with all their flaws. And, you know, to be fair, Lawrence is coming in maybe a little bit more uh, like an everyman. And then because of his success, we see how it takes him over and he leaves the film, like we talked about earlier, broken. And, you know, it's an interesting way to position our heroes because I think we like our antiheroes, but we still want them to be likable and relatable. It's very rare. And I think the one thing that we always go back to because it was done so well was someone like Walter White, when you end that season uh, or series, I should say, he is an unredeemable character. You may like him, but he has done so much wrong. Even when he tries to right some of those wrongs, like, yes, he's done a couple of right things, but it is a little bit rare. We don't get to see that kind of unabashed thing. We try to kind of erase the bad by a couple of good acts. Um, So, talking about this week's film, uh, it's another interesting character. It's Marlon Brando in On the Waterfront. uh, And as you've heard from our opening, it has one of the most famous lines in movie history I could have been a contender. And it's a really emotional scene. And I think if you've not seen the film, um, you don't know how much weight that actually holds because it's a moment for this character to kind of articulate his feelings of what he lost and what he's compromised in his life. And it's A thought that I think we all have. So we reached out to you. We said, hey, why don't you give us a call? Let us know what you could have been a contender in. Uh, A little bit more of an earnest call. No accents, no crazy sound effects. And uh, you did not disappoint. Take a listen. I was once a pretty
3: good trombonist all throughout
2: high school and through
3: part of college. Then I got a little bit discouraged
2: somewhere along the way. And I just gave it up and switched majors in college. And I haven't picked it up since. So yeah, I
3: could have been a trombonist. When I was in high school, I got a full scholarship to do
2: musical theater um, in college. And at the last minute, I backed out because I didn't think that I could sustain a career as a, as a stage performer. So
0: I
3: could have been a performer. Uh,
1: for many, many years, I actually played piano.
2: And when I got older, when I got in high school, I decided to leave playing the piano behind. Now I can't do that skill anymore. so. I could have been a musician. You know, when I was little, I I wanted to be a travel show producer. I could have been a travel show producer. I wanted to travel the world, make TV shows. My could have been a, would involve sports. I always loved sports my whole life. I played a lot of different sports, and I just wish that I had stuck with it or had taken one maybe a bit more seriously. Maybe today I could have been a pro athlete.
1: What great answers. Thank you, everybody, for playing along. And what uh, honest answers. I think we all have regrets. I think regrets make us stronger. And it's so interesting that you shared them with us. But there's one person who probably will never uh, achieve that much more after On the Waterfront. Or maybe he will. I don't know. Maybe I'm being pessimistic. And that character, of course, is Terry Malloy. We're going to get into it in just a second with our feature presentation On the Waterfront. The year is 1954. The phrase under God is added into the Pledge of Allegiance. Vice President Nixon breaks the Senate's 165-year-old ivory gavel. Separate but equal, school segregation is overturned by Brown versus Board of Education. The sensory deprivation tank is invented as well as the Pina Colada. In addition to The Fast and the Furious, a film which actually was made in 1954 and loosely inspires the contemporary Fast and Furious franchise, audiences are also watching 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, Rear Window, and today's film, on the waterfront. It ranks number 19 on the 2007 AFI Top 100 list. It has slipped a staggering 11 points since its 1997 ranking of number eight on the list. Amy, who's in it? What's it about?
0: On the waterfront, it is a story of the mafia corrupting the longshoremen of New Jersey. And by that I mean we have Marlon Brando as Terry Malloy. He's a former boxer who's in a little bit with the mob as he loads boxes on and off this boat or really just gets paid for slacking off and keeping his mouth shut. His brother, Rod Steiger, our friend from In the Heat of the Night, is is his older brother, Charlie, the gent, who's much associated with the bad guy of the film, Lee J. Cobb, playing Michael J. Skelly, who goes by Johnny Friendly, who controls everything and takes... He actually charges people for the ability to work on his on his, on his his own docks. And he has bankers give the people money to work. To, oh, it's very complicated, his whole scheme. He's a real jerk. On the side of justice, you have Carl Malden as Father Barry and also making her debut, Eva Marie Saint, as Edie Doyle, sister of one of the fallen men who tried to fight against this brigade. But the real drama here is all about Marlon Brando being torn, being dumb, being too hard hard up to pick sides between justice. He's just not a guy who thinks even in terms of justice. And then the extra, extra, extra drama is that this is directed by Elia Kazan, who just right before this movie came out, named names to HUAC, a group that comes up a lot in terms of a group that wound up really reshuffling the landscape of Hollywood, who was allowed to work, who wasn't all based on who was in the Communist Party 20 years before in the 1930s. Eli Kazan was loosely affiliated. He had named names in 1952. This movie, all about, is it a good thing to turn in people? Is it a good thing to be a rat? Has largely been seen as his justification, him and also the writer Bud Bud Schulberg, for rat culture. And so that is the drama behind this film. That is sort of why it has always been major and polarizing. I would not be surprised if that's a little bit why it it dropped off the list. And it's also why when you said that one of the things that happened in 1954 is we added Under God to the Pledge of Allegiance, This is all tied up in our fight to say that we are not communists. We are religious in this country.
1: I mean, you know, this movie, through its gestation process, was even at one point talked about having the dock workers be communist. And they, of course, pulled that all back because our producer of last week's uh, movie, Lawrence of Arabia, Sam Spiegel, kind of comes in and takes over this project and I think shapes the film that we see today Uh, from what it was based on. Because it's been based on a couple of different things, right? There were these articles about the dock workers. Um, It was like a whole series of articles.
0: They had tons of them. They won a Pulitzer. They were published in the New York Sun by a writer named Malcolm Johnson. They were amazing. They were called The Waterfront. And they really went into this case. Most of the characters in here are based on real people, including the priest, including Marlon Brando, including the evil guy.
1: Well, correct me if I'm wrong, because Bud Schulberg didn't really – put that forward when he was writing a script and the actual inspiration for Terry Malloy sued the picture to say like, this is me, this is my story. Like Bud Scholberg was hanging out with me at a bar and kind of peppering me with questions. I gave him all this information and everyone started to come forward and say, no, no, that's me. I am the priest of the dock." You
0: know, I, I'm actually on the side of Anthony DiVincendo, DiVincendo who sued Anthony, who said like Marlon Brando was based on me. Cause when this went to court, Marlon Brando actually testified, and he said, yeah, yeah, they told me to, to model myself after that guy. Wow. So that's amazing that this m- whole movie that's about ratting or not, in a way, Marlon Brando was like, I'm ratting you guys out. You absolutely did tell me to base this character on that guy. Right. And I'm going to stick up for the truth of it.
1: Live by rat culture, die by <laughs> rat culture, Amy. That's what I always say. Yeah, um, but if
0: we're getting into the drama of how the story came to be, there's a name I haven't mentioned yet that I should, which is Arthur Miller, the famous playwright. Right. Because the story is when Elia Kazan first wanted to make this story about the Longshoremen, he was like, Arthur Miller, we're good buddies. I want you to write this script for me. They were both people who came out of New York theater. I think that the rumors is that Elia Kazan even introduced Arthur Miller to Marilyn Monroe. Oh, wow. That's how close they were. And Arthur Miller's like, yes, this will be about these dock workers. They brought the story to Harry Cohn of Columbia, who's kind of a dick. Mm-hmm. And Harry Cohn, it was his idea to say, we have to make it communists. Don't make it dock workers. Don't make it union people. The bad guys can't be union people. They have to be communists. Arthur Miller was like, I won't do that. I quit. And, and, And then Eli Kazan was like, I'll still do it. But then they reeled it back from communism anyways. And so that whole thing caused a huge split between Kazan and Miller, two of the most important people in their time.
1: Wow, it's interesting to think of what that collaboration would have continued to create if they actually stuck together. But Yeah,
0: these are the guys who made Death of a Salesman. You know, we could have had more Death of a Salesman. I mean, and
1: that's what everyone wants, a big, uplifting story (laughs) like Death of a Salesman, like a real This Is Us kind of story. Um, (laughs) I have to say, I like Bud Schulberg, and I was a big fan of his book, What Makes Sammy Run. Um, And I think he brought something to this film that Ilya Kazan, I think, actually was able to harness, which is like a realism, right? You know, I think Bud Schulberg wrote very real mannered people, you know, that they they seemed to be almost from a documentary. And I think we are finding out that he did base them on real people. And Ilya Kazan, his whole method, the method, was about making these characters feel Real, So I think that this collaboration is actually a really important one, too. And if you're not familiar with the method and where Ilya Kazan was coming from, Ilya Kazan uh, created this theater company along with Lee Strausberg. And here's just uh, a second or two of Ilya Kazan just talking about the idea of what the method brought to modern film, because this is the film that really kind of. You can look at like a, a timeline of film, and this is a, the big switch is kind of happening here. It's less mannered, it's much more real, it's a little bit more, I dare say, quirky.
3: I mean, it's inconceivable in the theater of the 1920s that Al Pacino would be a star, or, or Bobby De Niro, that the whole thing has changed because of us, because of this place. When you, Lee Strasberg and Harold Klerman were teaching, what was different? What was so different? Oh, well, just about everything. In the first place, uh, the uh, the method essentially is terribly human, profoundly human thing. It's not, uh, uh, it was affected by psychoanalysis, by the new developments in psychoanalysis, the understanding of the, the soul, so to say. People were trained in to control their own emotions.
1: You know, and I think this idea of this raw emotion and bringing these characters that, I don't know, they look a little bit more flawed than some of the characters we've seen at this time, really makes this film work for me. I mean, I... Was so brought in by these performances because this is a movie about, you know, wrestling with your conscience to a certain degree. Like Marlon Brando, you know, is feeling this guilt of this act that he does. What a great opening! The movie opens in such a bombastic way. Leonard Bernstein's score is just like so punctuated and just like, you know, you get into this film and. It's tense, and it's moving fast. You don't know what's going on, and within the first five minutes, you know, Marlon Brando has been a party to killing this man, and we don't know who this man is, and we kind of unfold that throughout the film, but it just jumps off the page at you, and the whole movie is basically his unraveling from that from that deed, and it's interesting because you talk a lot about not liking films where you don't know why the character is depressed or what's going on with the character. And here, you know exactly what's going on. And and I think Brando does such a great job of, of sharing his emotions. You know, he's, you know, viewed as this kind of lug, but you really see how much it, it tears him apart and, and, and all the ways that he goes into it and away from it. And, you know, it's a, it's a great character.
0: Yeah, exactly. I think, like, the bad version of this is in the last minute of the third act. You're like, I killed a man. That's why I'm so upset. Right. I hope to kill a man. Because I'm really less interested in the what you did in the past as in the what are you going to do about it now. Well, and that's I'm, what I love about this kind of movie. And I love that you started off by talking about that music in the pigeon scene because that just really jumps out to me, too. Because what you're looking at doesn't look that scary no. for five minutes. He's like, I'm getting off of work. I got my hand in a jacket. I'm holding a pigeon. Everything's normal. I walk to this guy's house. We have this conversation about this pigeon. And in the background, the music is losing its mind. And you're like, what's happening? Why is this music freaking out while this guy's just having this pigeon talk? I mean, let's listen to it.
4: All right. What do you want? Hey, I got one of your birds. I recognize him by the band.
3: Yeah, it must be Danny boy. I lost him in the last race. Yeah, he flew into my coop. you want
4: him? Well, I got to watch myself these days. You know what I mean? Well, listen, don't worry. I'll
3: take him up your law. Okay, I'll see you on the roof.
1: And then you reveal these two men, these two shadowy men on the roof. And then moments later, Batman is thrown off the roof. But wow, like talk about getting you in, in such a, like it just shoots you out of a cannon. It's, it is like the third act of a film in the first minutes of uh, a first act. And yeah, I think, that's
0: the music of the big rumble at the end. Yeah. And it's just like, he's giving you a pigeon. Get ready. Stuff's gonna go down.
1: This is a movie I've never seen before, but it's a movie they often kind of just lump in with Streetcar. I think, I don't know why I've, I've seen Streetcar, but I've never seen this. And, and it didn't seem really important. Important. I know everyone makes fun of the, uh, I could have been a contender speech. I mean, that's like the the classic meme of this film. But um, I think I was really surprised at how kind of gritty and, and it feels, again, very contemporary the story is. It's not a very... Um, You know, it doesn't feel of the 50s necessarily. You know, it feels of the now. And I think you can see very clearly like where Rocky was inspired. I mean, this movie is this is just Rocky if he didn't stop doing what he was doing, you know. Um, (laughs) Yeah, Rocky
0: is like if On the Waterfront was a little bit less dangerous. Yeah. But he's like, I still love shy girls. I still love animals. I still love lots of things. Yeah, I heard a couple people. But what if I really actually didn't care ever repent for that? And what if nobody was asking me to? What if I just got to go date the
1: girl? Like, (laughs) oh,
0: okay, Rocky, sure.
1: Yeah, yeah, let's make it an uplifting movie. I mean, and then there's another thing. I mean, I have to ask you, like, what came first, uh, the pigeon or the boxer? Because we have um, here in this film, you know, Marlon Brando, boxer who loves his pigeons, obviously Mike Tyson, loves his pigeons I mean was Mike Tyson just trying to be Terry Malloy or uh or is this just a thing with boxers
0: yeah how did you know that I pulled a clip of Mike Tyson talking about pigeons I did because, not because I would because I would I mean Mike Tyson loves pigeons and yes. he famously said that part of why he became a boxer is when he was a kid in his rough neighborhood he had a bunch of pigeons. One day, one of the kids from the neighborhood, in some stories, the kid kills one of his pigeons. In other stories, the kid steals one of his pigeons. Got it. Whatever it is, he went to avenge his pigeon, and that was the first fistfight he was ever in. But listen to the love in his voice as he's talking about this one pigeon he loves.
5: I love his color. It's not necessarily the best fly and the fastest time, but it's just a bird that I am you know, have an affinity with, I'm attracted to. I, like the, I love the stature. And um, it's just the color. I'm a color guy. I like the colors in the birds. This is, I think, is a stunning color. If you, you know. I'm sure many people will agree. When, when the racing business, people get want of the birds with the fastest time the best. But the, the guy that's always the fastest time doesn't always fascinate me. He's just the winner. Of course, we have plenty of winners, but this one's the winner to me because he never gives up. And he's just um, a beautiful looking bird, you know? And I guess um, I'm pretty shallow. Like most of society, I like looks as well as the performance. And she looks beautiful.
0: I mean, he's also it, wearing an Ed Hardy shirt. I, I was gonna You
1: know, out. I mean, times were different back then.
0: Um, a I, man could love a bird and not have to specify too awkwardly that it, he is shallow and is just attracted to that bird. <laughs> and he could wear an Ed Hardy shirt and indictment di- other men, you know, as men, we're superficial. We like the beautiful pigeons.
1: Yeah, sure. And, and, and Mike Tyson, that's his only problems. The thing that I'm surprised at by watching this, though, is, is just a similarity even in, in, in vocal range between Marlon Brando and Mike Tyson. It's yeah. like there are some really interesting similarities here.
0: Yeah, you know, I actually interviewed Mike Tyson once, mm-hmm. and um, he said that when you look at the history of boxing, typically, like, the current class of boxers, the people who are the best, who are doing the best in boxing— are usually the people who are on the lowest totem pole of society. And that when you trace boxing back, you know, you start with the Irish, then you go to the Italians, then you go to African-Americans, now you're going to people who are coming from Latin America, that you're looking at the last wave of America that they can't get a shot unless they fight with their fists. Wow! And that he really put it in this political context. And so I guess that makes sense why they love pigeons, because, you know, a lot of, a lot of people are growing up in the inner cities where they don't have a lot of money and where they ha- can't have space or animals.
1: Right. Is the roof. You know, talking about Brando a little bit here, this is a movie that might not have had the same impact if it was cast with one of the original actors that they wanted to play this role, which was Frank Sinatra, a man from Hoboken who kind of has that language and lingo down, but I don't think has any of the emotional complexity of Marlon Brando. I think Marlon Brando really can play tough and uh, and not shy, but uh, emotional. Like, I mean, you, you see him go through a range of emotions here. That's really, I think a difficult task to pull off for somebody that is supposed to be a boxer that you believe is this, um, you know, kind of muscle. I mean, he's muscle. He's muscle in the sense that he just works on the docks. He's, you know, like Frank Sinatra, I don't think at this day and age looks like a guy is probably working on the docks. You know, I think he looks like Frank Sinatra.
0: I, I always have kind of thought that Frank Sinatra was their second choice just Forever that mm-hmm. it was that Marlon was always their first choice. But Marlin Marlon was actually mad that um Ilya Kazan had named names. He was pretty angry about it and he oh. didn't want to work with Ilya Kazan. Because he
1: refused the offer when it was given to him. He did, right? and that
0: was a lot of why. Like um, when they sent him the script, he just returned it and they had put in little pieces of paper to see if he even opened the script. Wow. And they were like, he didn't even open it. So then they did a tiny like a, a testing of it. And they had Paul Newman, who wasn't famous at all yet at this point either. Paul Newman in, in the Terry Molloy role. And it just made Marlon be like, okay, 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 okay. I want this one. I want
1: this part. Oh, really? Because I had heard studio wanted Sinatra. Kazan wanted Brando. Brando said no. Sinatra has a handshake deal. But Kazan's like, you know what? I think what we need to do is show the studio how much better this movie would be with an actor of the caliber of Marlon Brando. Somebody who could be tough and... And emotional and vulnerable. So they had Rod Steiger direct a scene between Joanne Woodward and Paul Newman to convince the studio, like, hey, this is what you would get if we got Brando. Like, something akin to this. Like, And they shot that scene between, you know, Terry Malloy and Edie Doyle, this very romantic scene. And I think that convinced the studio, okay, we'll let you, you know, try to get tracked down Brando. But I didn't know that Brando was against it from, uh, from like a moral standpoint.
0: Yeah, I mean, he would go back and forth about it all the time. Like I was mad at him and then I was like, oh, he's the best I ever worked with, but I was really mad at him. He was really conflicted about it. But it's weird though, because when you talk about this time from the late 40s to the mid 50s, everything I read about the actors coming out of New York and their relationship to Hollywood, mm-hmm. it really sounds like grunge in the 90s in Seattle. Interesting. It's so fascinating because, you know, there was this big thing in this culture of the group theater where so many of them are coming out of, where, you know, Brando was coming out of, where I think James Dean, Paul Newman, all of these people, Karl Malden himself was coming out of this, Rod Steiger was coming out of this. They were really worried about this concept of selling out, and they didn't want to sell out. And, you know, actually, Marty, we were playing, remember Marty with Paddy Chayefsky that yeah. we were just talking about? Um, Rod Steiger was the first person to play, to play Marty when he did it with Paddy on TV, and he would have been in the movie, and not Ernest Borgnine, except the studio asked him to sign a contract, and he was like, I'm not going to sign a contract. Oh, wow. Because there's so much of this, we are not going to abide by your old Hollywood rules. We don't want to make these big dumb movies. We don't want to be in these big musicals. We want to do the stuff that matters to us. And like paramount among this whole class of people was the way that people looked specifically at Marlon Brando. And they're like, Marlon Brando, you are the Kurt Cobain of this group. Do not fuck this up. You are showing the world what we can do. You are showing them like how to just go into Hollywood and blaze through it and do it on your own and be in Streetcar Named Desire and not sell out. Do not sell out Marlon Brando. And of course, he totally sold out. He was like, ah, I like money. Right. Fair. Fine.
1: It's funny. You can't find many interviews uh, with Marlon Brando talking about process or characters. Uh, I was looking, um, especially at this point in his career. But you can find many interviews with him talking about theories on life, what he would have been if not an actor, why money is important to him. He believes that, you know, it was important for him to provide for his family. You know, very much, you know, I think whenever I talk to, you know, a fellow actor or a writer, I think we all view ourselves as freelancers, right? We don't know when the next job is going to be. We're all essentially on that dock waiting to get called through those doors. And I think to a large swath of people, it looks very glamorous. It's like, oh, you're doing movies, you're on this thing. Yes. Once you get through that door, there is an element of that, but Once you're done with your job, you go back out on that dock and you wait to go back in again. And I think, you know, Marlon Brando is a guy who always kind of had – a work a day mentality to it. Like he was asking for things that were crazy on this film. He said he wanted to leave every day at 4 PM because he needed to go to therapy because he just had lost his mother and he was working on resolving his issues with his parents, you know, like, but he doesn't go off camera and talk about it. Like you can find him talking about native Americans. You can talk, him you know, talking about issues in society and having fun and, but that art seems like a different compartment to him. It's it's the way that I think you would traditionally view your parents. Like, I don't know what my parents do. They just go to work and they come home. They don't talk about it and that's it.
0: Yeah, exactly. Like, I think he liked being opaque and I think he liked imagining that he could see through the BS of Hollywood mm-hmm. a little bit. And he was just willing to give himself whatever he wanted to take, whatever he could get. I mean, he's still competitive. Like, when yeah. James Dean exploded the next year, he said, Mr. Dean appears to be wearing my last year's wardrobe and using my last year's talent. are like, meow. But the people around him really did believe that Marlon could change what Hollywood was, could change what acting was, that Marlon was going to be, like, this expression of everything that Kazan had been working for. Because yeah, most of the Hollywood movies around this period are... Big and colorful and musical there was this real belief that Americans just wanted to escape it's a lot like today honestly that they just wanted to escape into a giant blockbuster with like singing nuns or whatever and the people who didn't want that the people who really actually saw art tied up with politics tied up with realism tied up with like talking about the problems of society people like Kazan you know Kazan had always considered himself a political person since the 30s they wanted him to be something that he didn't want to be and I imagine like under all that pressure Brando was like no you don't own me
1: you basically have two films that we've now talked about one high noon and now this on the waterfront that really are very much uh, accessible stories that are telling the story of Hollywood as its core emotional thesis you know standing up when everyone has turned their backs on you and you know and then ratting out for the greater good and you know I watch interviews with Elie Kazan and he's like, I would do it again. He's like, you know what I wouldn't do it again. I probably would think about it, change my mind, and then think about it again, and then do it again. Like, you know, he was like, he, like, he's, uh, this is an interview years later, just passionate about where he was. No, oh, that was a different time. And I think that that does color the movie in an interesting way. But here's Ilya Kazan talking about working with Brando and how it was to direct him. Because there's a lot of stories about what this movie was. Was he directed? Was the film improvised? Here's kind of a, I think this reads to me about right. I would several times on waterfront go up to Brando and say, I want you to do
3: so-and-so. And And then there'd be this awesome silence in which he'd look at me as though I was the fool of the world. And he'd say, you don't really mean that, do you? And I'd say, well, yes, I I did. He'd say, well, that's terrible. He says, I just can't do that. That seems false. And usually he was right. Hmm. But he always had an idea of his own, he, and yeah. he'd sort of walk away, and, and then he'd come back, and he'd always have something that was good, and often better than what I did. In mm-hmm. other words, he really would make a, uh, a, a contribution, and uh, he'd often come on the set sleepy, but, um, and tired, and exhausted, and uh, it sometimes needed me saying
1: something uh, that he didn't like mm-hmm. for him to become rejuvenated or mm-hmm. become alive. It's interesting, though, because it seems like those are the habits that got worse with Brando, right? Like, you know, then it was just testing directors. I've heard stories about Brando doing uh, takes that were bad and seeing if a director would call him on it. And if the director called him on it, he would respect him. If he didn't call him on it, he would do a bad performance. And, you know, Brando, I think, just, you know, went from caring a lot and getting into fights to what we were saying before just like collecting the check and that's and it's a weird break i don't know when it fully crosses over because even sometimes in his later career he's bringing an interesting performance like, i think like a movie like the freshman with matthew broderick like it's like oh that's a good brando performance you know it it but it's kind of mired in a in a sea of mediocre Brando performances. But, you know, you look at Last Tango in Paris, probably the best Brando performance, you know. But that was after he's also done a lot of garbage on the left and right side of that.
0: Yeah, I mean, I was going through and I was watching this movie and watching bits of it while having the script in front of me to try yeah. to see, like, what 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 was he changing? Like, yeah. was he really improvising? I mean, here's kind of like a sample. Like, there's a scene where he's on the roof and he's talking about pigeons. In the script, he's supposed to say, could this script, this, can we just say, by the way, like this movie is so heavily metaphorical about birds. Uh, Everything is birds. Everything is you're a pigeon, you're a hawk, you're a canary. And it was like, how many words for bird were there? Like, right. Them? I was looking up actually like a list of mafia slang words, and they're like, buzzards are cops, and ravens are how you get a message. Lobsters <laughs> are dumb people. Their slang sling for donut, by the way, was. Hole with rings around And I'm like That's just longer Than the word donut I don't know By if the way Amy You just gave
1: me A great idea For a Nick Jr. show Just uh, <laughs> a lot of bur- Mafia birds uh, Using these terms I love it Yeah
0: I mean To me I think Like the bird metaphors Go a little bit overboard When they're like bird, Birds, 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 birds But he's giving this Talk about birds And he's like You know this city's Full of hawks There must be 20,000 of them They perch on top Of the big hotels And swoop down On the pigeons In the park That's just a sample line Okay Heavily metaphorical Sample line And then here's How he delivers it Joey used to race pigeons.
4: Yeah, he had a few birds. I've been taking care of them.
5: I
0: wouldn't have thought you'd be so interested in pigeons.
4: I just go for it. You know, this city is full of hawks. That's a fact. They, they hang around on top of the big hotels, and they. Pss- about a
0: pigeon in the park right down on him. He just says these kind of micro natural yeah. changes right down on him. Like not just you know, sort of yeah. not a complete sentence. You know, the script was written in a complete sentence and he kind of chops it up a bit, adds pauses, describes it in, in his own way.
1: Well, it makes it organic to the character. You know, and watching that scene, I know you the listener cannot see the scene that we're watching, but I'm also just Brought in in this film by the camera angles, you know, you're you're capturing people like here, you know. I, I love the film relationship between these two characters. Like she's above him, he's below her. In the first couple of meetings that they have, you know, he's always kind of pulling her out of somewhere, and and that metaphorically, like she's pulling him out of this d and d deaf and dumb world that he's in, where he's not going to say anything, just keep his eye on the prize, you know, get his nice lofty spot on the boat doesn't have to do work and she's put, like literally making him pull her out and he's and he's changing and and i think this film does an amazing job of that there's another great scene where she's framed in the corner of the lens almost over him like uh an angel like you know like uh, an angel on your shoulder it's like it it really and again it's heavily metaphorical but it doesn't feel that way when you're watching, it, it's kind of as engaging. And, and I think when you go back and look at it, you're like, oh, that's, oh, everything was a little bit more conscious. And, and the actors here, I think, are photographed much more naturalistically. They don't, lo- they look like wind is going through their hair. And, and they, I think everything is about creating this realism. And I think breaking that script down is about that. As it's kind of getting to this, you know, we don't need the metaphor if we can kind of see the metaphor and, and make these characters feel real.
0: Yeah, like in this pigeon scene, I mean, even the colors of it, you know, you Mm. look up at her and she's framed in white looking, yeah, like an angel. I think exactly it. And when you look at him, he's got the dark roof behind him and he's like pitch black. He looks like he's coming from a dark place. And they just keep building that, I think, like psychology wise. I think it's really smart. I mean, one of the things that Kazan said about directing, and Kazan actually, I think when I hear Kazan talk about directing, I really like hearing him talk about directing. I like his philosophies. You know, he said that one of the things he really finds important is that In his style of acting, you think of the words just as, quote, decorations on the skirt of actions, to try to get away from the lines and get more into the subtext of what was happening. And, like, that was really to him what so much of the method was about. I mean, you could probably speak more to the method than I can, But, like, from what I've ever understood about the method, you know, like, it comes over here sort of from, like, Konstantin Stanislavski from the Moscow Art House Theater. Mm -hmm. Stanislavski, like, he was the guy who was staging the early Chekhov works. Yeah. You know, he was really intelligent about it. And he had this whole theory of acting that, you know, good acting took three things. It took inner experiencing, and it took outer characterization of it, and it also took rehearsal. And so he was writing this whole book about it that was going to be multiple volumes. But really only the first volume, the inner experiencing one, like— was the bulk of the one that got translated into English here. And so that was the one everybody based on. They kind of forgot the other two.
1: And look, I'm I'm no expert on method, but I think watching this movie today doesn't feel probably as revolutionary. We've talked about this now a lot in the last couple of episodes because it's the time in which this comes out that it breaks the mold. This feels like the acting of now. I think that sometimes – in the fifties and sixties, and forgive me if I am offending anybody out there that is a, a staunch, uh, you know, follower of the method. It seems a little bit too much sometimes. It almost seems like your character has an accent, a limp, and uh, and you know is always doing something with their hands. Yeah, you know, Dustin yeah, like, Hoffman. Yeah, like and and that's okay. And I think what it's now kind of morphed into is just really naturalistic performances. And Marlon Brando has that in spades. I just think that there are, you can see that he's always doing something, you know, and and going back to what I said earlier, like the idea of a mannered performer, like what you're seeing here on screen for the first time, or, you know, in this era is people that have a little bit more life in their bodies and, and they're not sounding so written, you know? And I think that that is something that really is translated today across the board. I mean, you know in comedy it's always like playing it real can you play it real and if you play it real it's funnier it's not playing out you know it's like just play the ground it in reality and i feel like that's a core tenant i think all actors are like that there's no other version of it there's a version of the method where it's also like you know daniel day lewis building a log cabin and living in the log cabin or doing the voice of lincoln so hard I heard a great story about him one time. You know, it's like he obviously is an when amazing actor. When is he going to cut
0: off his foot to play a pair of <laughs> Like, I'm surprised you didn't do that.
1: Well, I was talking to a friend who was on Gangs of New York and said, you know, he was fully in this character of Bob the Butcher. and and uh, But then would go over to the monitor and critique performance. So it's like, well, wait. So if you are in this mindset, like, what is, are you in a movie? Like, you know, like,
0: and like. I'm Bob the Butcher, but wait, you did not put the dressing on the side in my salad. I need (laughs) to correct
1: this politely. But I I think what it is, and for me, I know how I am. You want to stay in the moment and you want to feel like you're in the character. And it's, there's so many ups and downs in production like you know and waiting that if you lose it or if you are not connected to it we again going back to once upon a time in hollywood uh, that little girl who talks to uh leonardo dicaprio like it's the same idea like you want to stay in it, and i think this idea of of the method here is about keeping an inward flame always ignited you want to have your your character's always having something on their minds, what they're feeling. And and I think you're creating these characters now that haven't a really rich inner life that can kind of come pouring out, and they don't always have to name it.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think like Kazan, when you hear him teach actors how to do the method mm-hmm. – it sounds so much like manipulation, you know, complete. I mean, it is just flat out manipulation. Yeah. And you're right, like, we've grown up in a period where every actor I know has just wanted to be Marlon Brando or James Dean. Mm-hmm. And so we're in like a Marlon Brando, James Dean spillover still. Like, I think that's why I get more excited by, I mean, people like Lakeith Stanfield, who I, just, I think has more of like a freedom to it, like a mm-hmm. playfulness. Like, he's drawing on art less than he's drawing on what is my personal demons. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm extrapolating. I don't no, really know. No, but, but I think, yeah. I
1: mean, look, David Mamet teaches something that's very similar. It's not the method. It's the David Mamet thing where it's like, all right, you've never shot a person, but have you ever been in a situation where you have felt like you've done somebody wrong? Okay, what was it? Well, I was in a car accident one time. I hit somebody. All right, well, how'd you feel there? Okay, now use that. Now put that into that. You know, we're always about, like, engaging ourselves and trying to get us to that place. I think, like anything, though, this is the the apex and new things form up behind it and then people have different ways of doing it and then you kind of find your own way of doing it i don't i don't know if i bump into too many people that are like, I'm method. But I think back in the 50s and 60s and probably even the 70s, people are like, no, I'm method. And that's, I think, it's just a, it, you know, I think now it's a little bit more everybody's, yeah. you know, trying to find the truth and the realness of what they're Although doing.
0: Although a lot of critics also just thought method meant like you're just going to mumble. Just just say the line so I can so hear it. So basically
1: method is mumblecore.
0: There's actually this story that I really love that's from 1946. And this is when Marlon Brando was brand, 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 brand new on the stage. It's one of his first performances. It's a play called, I think, uh, yeah, Truck Line Cafe. It closed after just 13 performances. I love it. And he's on stage. He has a little bit. And what happens is young, young, young Pauline Kael, before she's a critic, she goes to see this play. And she sees this young man that she says she thinks is having a seizure on stage. She's like... Uncomfortable on his behalf, she starts to almost quietly panic. She's like, "What is happening?" And then it wasn't later until her companion grabbed her arm that she realized he was acting.
5: Wow. Yeah.
0: Then that's just how revolutionary he felt, you know? Yeah. And I really do love that. But it's it is still so fascinating to hear Eli Kazan talk about how he made it all happen. Like he was really interested in psychoanalysis. You know, the way he psychoanalyzed himself is that he's like, "I was this kid who came here. I was a Turkish immigrant." I always felt a little bit uncomfortable. Like when I told my dad I wanted to be an actor, my dad was like, have you looked in the mirror? And that he grew up so awkward in his own skin that he became like this hugely ambitious womanizer because he felt like he was a loser. Wow. And then he would take his analysis of himself and he would use it to break apart his actors. He has this one story, you know, because he said that to him m- that casting is almost every part of the job. Right. Do you remember that actress we loved, Midge in Vertigo? Yes. Barbara Bel Yeah. So he cast her in um, Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, right? You know, the words like about this woman whose husband won't have sex with her. are yeah. He cast our beloved Midge in Cat on a Hot Tin Roof in the role that ended up with Elizabeth Taylor in the movie. And he said the reason that he did it is that he could tell that she had been fat when she was a kid. And when he found that out, when she told him actually that she had been fat when he was a kid, he said, you know, when a girl is fat in her teens and slims down – she is left with an uncertainty about her appeal to boys, and what often results is a strong sexual, sexual appetite intensified by the continuing anxiety of believing herself undesirable.
1: Wow. I mean, that's kind of. Yeah. That, that, that's, a, that's a bit much, yeah, to be bit. honest. Yeah, but I mean, it's again, it's like armchair psychology. But he
0: gave this speech to Wesleyan in 1973 that I really, really love. And he actually wrote it out in his book called, I think, like Kazan on Kazan. Mm-hmm. And he talks about what the life is of being a film director. You know, and what you need to be a film director, and I just love it because I think it's really, really beautiful. He says that the life of a film director is a totality, and he must learn as he lives. And then everything is pertinent. There must, there is nothing irrelevant or trivial. He says that if you want to be a good act, a good director, what you need to know is you have to know literature, you have to know comedy, you have to know how to analyze subtext, you have to know vaudeville and opera. You have not, you cannot be a snob about musicals. He said you have to know musicals, you have to know acrobatics, sculpture, you have to know music, the classics, you have to know modern music. You have to be such a curious person. And he says, beyond even all of that, beyond of art, you have to make like your own clipping files of photos of interiors, of exteriors you find interesting. You have to look at the way people dress. You have to look at the way that people talk, depending on the the time of day, depending on the weather. You have to really be this person who's studying life. He was like, you have no history, religion, economics. You have to know how food is, what food means to people. You have to, like, hitchhike the entire country if you can. If you have not hitchhiked the country, he's like, do it. So I guess now he'd be getting people killed, but whatever.
1: Well, that's not totally true. I mean, hitchhikers aren't dying left and right in the country. Because
0: there aren't any. <laughs> I mean, he said that when it comes to actors specifically, you have to know how to inspire them. You have to know how to get them to use their voice properly. And that you have to be able to work with neurotics. And then mm. if would get into some weird stuff, he was like, you have to know everything about lovemaking. Wow. He was like, if you have to know everything about lovemaking because the director, quote, May will have, like Boone well does with feet, special fetishes, uh, and that you are not concerned to hide these. Rather, you should express your inclinations with relish. So maybe Tarantino took that to heart. Um, he said that a director, now I'm gonna rant, but I just, I really love the speech. He said that a director needs to learn how to say, I am wrong, let's try it another way, which I thought was beautiful. Yeah. And then he said, and he had this beautiful paragraph on animals, that like directors have to study animals. And of mm-hmm. course, if it's an animal, I'm going to have to talk of about course. it. Of course. But he said you have to study how animals resemble human beings, how to direct a chicken to enter a room on cue, and what a cat might mean to a love scene, and the symbolism of horses, the family life of the lion, and the patience of a cow.
1: <laughs> I Isn't love that. that. Beautiful, it's I mean, beautiful. And that was a what? Was that in the sixties? He said that. That or? was
0: in the seventies, and I love it because yes, he's describing the life of being a film director, but to me it also means like the life of being a critic. Yeah. Because I think critics. Need to know much more than movies. They need to know everything.
1: Well, I mean, hearing that, I'm just like, you know, think about how simple his career would have been if he just had Google. Wow. You know, you could just gotta. So got like everybody's all as it.
0: good as Elia Kazan yeah, now. exactly. Isn't you it? just yeah. Google
1: it right away. No, I, I think <laughs> you know what I like about that is that he is showing the thing that I love about directors, which is a collaboration. And and I think that we've talked a lot on this show about directors who are dictators right they worked us so hard but in the end it turned out great they talk about somebody like howard hawks who you know was so playful on set and let his actors you know do so much that you get this amazing performance out of Catherine hepper and i think there's two schools of thought one is like hire the best people and let them be the best and the other one is i am the best person i'm gonna make everybody the best and um from being on both of those sets and being in those positions as a director and as a as an actor, I think it's a much more fulfilling and exciting proposition to let yourself be surprised. And it makes me also see how this is a guy who does testify against people who he thinks are communists. He's he's trying to do the greater good. He's not trying to play deaf and dumb. Like he's trying to say, like, you know what? I'm worried, and here it is. And maybe you know, the hysteria of the moment was bad for that kind of an instinct because those people were then blackballed. But I like that idea that he, I think, is from a good-hearted place.
0: I mean, it is interesting that, you know, his his analogy here and on the waterfront is that giving names to HUAC is basically like informing on murderers or something. Mm. You know, you're like, well, HUAC is the worst and they are destroying a lot of people. But they are not at least, well, maybe they are murderers. Maybe I'm not allowed to say, like, who knows? Wait, now Wait am I going to go on record and be like, did Hueck murder somebody? No, did they? I mean, do you I have any know. information? I don't know. Name names. Name names. Name names. Do I know anything? I don't know. I just know I don't trust. I don't have a lot of trust for uh. the people who are behind Hueck. But it really is that anger that I think pops out so much in this film. I mean, I was thinking, and I know we need to actually start really talking even more about the film film itself, but because we let Kazan in our culture, I think, take so much ownership over this film and when you yeah. talk about it. But I was watching this film, film and I was thinking about Kazan this week. And it reminded me of what we do see happen to artists, like say Dave Chappelle, who mm-hmm. you know, who when they get in trouble for something, they double down and trying to argue that they're right to the point of self destruction. And right. there's you I, in Waterfront, I feel like I almost sense Kazan getting close. You know, there's this way of like people feeling like they got pushed and then taking it too far.
1: But it's the Lenny Bruce idea, right? Which is like he made his whole act about what he was perceiving as censorship. And then that became uninteresting. Whereas somebody like Kazan takes this anger and funnels it into art.
0: Yeah. I mean, maybe I wish that more people could be kind of like my favorite character in this whole movie, which is Carl Martin's father Barry, Mm. you know, I mean, father Barry, when he starts off this film, he's not being the voice of the neighborhood so much that he gets yelled at by Eva Marie St. When he's leaning over her brother's dead body.
3: Edie, listen, Edie, Edie, Edie. Time and faith. Remember, time and faith are great English. Father, my brother is dead, and you talk about Shh, time and faith. Know, my brother was the best kid in the neighborhood, Edie, and everybody Edie, said Edie, so. Listen, I, I'm in the church if you need me. You're in the church if I need you. Did you ever hear of a saint hiding in a church?
0: I want to know who killed my brother. I mean, she starts off this film dressing him down. Like, what yeah. are you doing in that church? And in that moment, you see him learn that he has to step up and be the leader of this community. And I think his arc in this film is really compelling.
1: His arc is the same arc as Terry Malloy to a certain degree. It's how their conscience affects their decisions. Now, the father quickly turns. Like In the the next scene, he is on his path to redemption. It takes almost the whole film for Terry Malloy to kind of— have that kick in for himself, but it is—it's interesting. It's—it's it's wrestling with these decisions, and you see it also with who I love in this movie, Rod Steiger, uh, Charlie, um, this brother who is the right hand man of of the of the town, the waterfront gangster, and he's also wrestling with his loyalty. You know, who is he loyal to? And you know, he is loyal to his brother at the end, and he is betrayed by this man that he. You know, he follows, you know, that man isn't as loyal to him. It, it's his conscience tries to save his brother and he gets killed for it.
0: Yeah. I mean, really what so much of the the narrative underpinning here is this idea that like Charlie and Terry were orphans and that they were put in foster homes and that the foster homes didn't take care of them. And that they're two people who never thought that they could trust anybody but each other. Right. And then Johnny Friendly comes in. And I love this joke that Johnny Friendly's real name is Skelly. Like, Skelly and Friendly. You know? Oh, I love it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Skelly and Friendly. And Johnny Friendly is sort of this father figure that neither of them had. And when you're that young and adopted by somebody who says he's going to take care of you, and in Charlie's point of view and in Terry's point of view, mostly seems to have. Fagin. Yeah. You don't know how to betray them. You don't even know that you should. Yeah. And you don't even know how to question that they're wrong.
1: But I didn't get that Terry had any allegiance to Johnny. I felt like um, that was much more of a Charlie thing. Maybe because it – it He felt uncomfortable and unfamiliar when he was in that bar. You know, he's a part of it, but he's kind of on the outskirts of it. You know, I feel like he's kind of kept around or
0: they make like, fun of him because he's dumb.
1: Yeah, like they like he doesn't feel like a father figure to to Terry to me at least. I, like, you know, I think that Terry sees that there could be a problem. He gives him some money, gives him a cushy job and He's like, this is gonna go over fine. But it doesn't seem like he was treating him any differently than he would have treated. I
0: feel like he likes them a little better than most of those mugs. I think, I think Johnny likes Terry a little better because he's watching boxing right when Terry comes in. Right. And he seems to look down on all of his men as scornful. Like he doesn't mm-hmm. seem to appreciate any of them. Which, yeah, the, I mean, the casting of just the people in the room, like what an assembly
1: of weird oh, old faces. I love I it.
0: I love it. I mean, especially to have Fred Gwynn. You know, I love
1: Fred Gwynn. Wait. Wait, Fred Gwynn is in this movie? I did yeah. not see him.
0: Yeah, yeah, way before the monsters. He's just one of the henchmen.
1: Oh, Long wow. Long ass
0: face glowering in the background. I mean, okay, talk about casting. Talk about casting yeah. the great face. They did that. But I, you know, I sense that, like, in the room when Terry comes in, it did feel like maybe a grandfather, like Johnny being the grandfather, like, mm. oh, my boy, at least
1: you're sort of good for something, sort of, sort of, right. or at least you behave like you're the good kid. Right. Like you did me, he just came in and did him a solid, right? Like, and maybe it's like, I like this guy because his moral compass is so, I mean, I don't know if his moral compass is off. It just seems like he keeps his head down. He's not really involved in that unit. It seems like they asked him, Hey, can you help us out? And he did help him out. I feel like that's about the level that he is. He's not like, he's not an enforcer. Like the other guys are going to push somebody off a building, but maybe it's like a gateway drug. It's like, you know, maybe in a couple of years, if he kept on going down that route, he would be that guy.
0: Yeah, when he started to get even more poor or something. Yeah. Like less useful. I mean, to me, it feels like not so much that his compass is broken and pointing south when it should be north, I guess. Just he doesn't have a compass. Or like maybe it's in his pocket and he never noticed it was there.
1: Yeah. He really seems awakened by the violence when it hits home. That was his friend. They both had their pigeons. He is innocent in the beginning of that. He's under the belief they were just going to rough him up. Now, that's not great, but he's doing a favor. He knows he's got to do a favor. He because, believes
0: everybody gets roughed up.
1: Right. And and that's the way that the culture is there. The culture is like, you know, that's why no one shows up to the church. It's like you. there are consequences for your actions. So I feel like he's not questioning anything. And when he actually sees an effect of that roughing up murder, that's what kind of sets him off. I don't think he would have ever been set off if if his friend was just roughed up.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting to look at Terry's character through the eyes of the special investigators because not knowing that Terry's kind of just, dumb, you know, dumb mm-hmm. and is really clueless, he looks so sinister to them. I mean, when they right. come to try to find him at the docks. Say, so you're
4: Terry Malloy, aren't you? So what? Didn't I see you fight a couple of years ago? Uh, without the birdseed, what do you want? Oh, our, our identification
0: Right? I mean, he just sort of talks to him like he's a tough. Breno's acting like a tough. He uses the word birdseed right. to mean something without the without the nice talk. Is that right, what right, right. Is that what Yeah. Yeah, he's
1: not exposing himself. And plus, he's surrounded by this grouping of men, but he would never – you know, he would never turn on him. This is the code of the land. This is the mafia code. I mean, we've seen so many movies, your favorite movie, Goodfellas, about the code <laughs> that the mafia has, uh, you know, and like, and that's how it stays strong. You know, this is no one rats. Because if you do rat, if you're even perceived to be having a conversation, which is what we see later, you know, he was talking to her. He, w- the, he was talking to them. He was smiling. Whatever it is, you've put a target on yourself. And I think it's one of those ingrained things that you just know.
0: I think Carl Madan, he gives so many great speeches about that. I almost want to play two of them, if that's sure. okay. Sure. Let's play the first one when Carl has brought all these men to the church and he's trying to get them to talk for the first time.
3: Now listen, you know who the pistols are. You're going to keep still until they cut you down one by one? Are you? Hey, Dugan. Dugan, how about you, are you? One thing you got to understand, Father, on the dock we've always been D&D. D&D, what's that? Deaf and dumb. No matter how much we hate the torpedoes, we don't rat. Rat? When our boys get smart. I know you're getting pushed around, but there's one thing we've got in this country, and that's ways of fighting back. Now, getting the facts to the public, testifying for what you know is right against what you know is wrong. And what's writing to them is telling the truth for you. Now, can't you see that?
0: And I love how is just panning around to all these different faces, and they're looking at the priest like he's an idiot. You know, they're kind of quietly smiling to themselves, right. rolling their eyes just a little, just going down. Just they can't believe in him yet. And then they finally do when Dugan, whose voice we also heard in there, he decides he is going sp- uh, to speak up and then he's murdered for it. And there's that beautiful scene in the bottom of the boat right next to Dugan's dead body where this movie to me starts taking on really intense religious tones. You know, in part because the priest is talking about crucifixion.
3: Standing up, but this time they fixed him. Oh, they—they fixed him for good this time. Unless it was an accident, like Big Mac says. Some people think the crucifixion only took place on Calvary. They better wise up. Taking Joey Doyle's life to stop him from testifying is a crucifixion. And dropping a sling on K.O. Dugan because he was ready to spill his guts tomorrow—that's a crucifixion. And every time the mob puts the pressure on a good man, tries to stop him from doing his duty as a citizen, it's a crucifixion. And anybody who sits around and lets it happen, keeps silent about something he knows has happened, shares the guilt of it just as much as the Roman soldier who pierced the flesh of our Lord to see if he did. Come back to your church, Father! Boys, this is my church! And if you don't think Christ is down here on the waterfront, you've got another guest coming.
0: I mean, what I love about that speech so much is it sets up to me perfectly the ending, which is Terry Malloy being beaten beyond recognition, them being like, please just stand up, stand up and walk. And they're asking him basically for like a resurrection. It's like Mm -hmm. the resurrection of the martyr, you know, get up, walk, be this like basically Jesus figure to everybody, inspire all of these people to follow you into this revolution.
1: Well, it's interesting because you have a character who can speak like this because he won't ever be touched. You know, when they are doing that roughing up of everybody in the church, they're not going to hit a priest with a baseball bat. So there's something really um, powerful in the fact that he can speak truth to power and have no consequences. But also there is something that he just doesn't understand at all, which is what it takes is someone like Marlon Brando, to do it, to cause the revolution. You can't have the commentator cause the revolution. And then, like, yes, he may be saying, like, you have to do it. But until the person who actually is affected is doing it, it doesn't mean anything. And, you know, it's interesting talking about Chris Fiction, talking about this movie and the morals. This movie, I don't know if you know this, is on the Vatican's movie list. Really? Yes, it is. It is um, in their values category. Whoa. In their list of their top 45 films.
0: What else is in the values category? I
1: wish I knew. Uh, maybe <laughs> Goonies. Um, I'm not picking this movie because I really, really love this movie. But I see an ending here that if made today would be different. I, I think Terry Malloy dies, right? Like, And then the workers rise up because of that, they all, you know, they all leave the dock. you know, they leave him without workers or, you know, there is something... They'd rather go hungry than work for this man.
0: That's funny because I saw it playing out in the exact opposite way. I was like, uh, if they remade this today, yeah. it would be with Marlon Brando as more of like a John Wick figure, just like beating everybody up.
5: Uh, well, I mean, these, I was thinking like, about that, just, yes. Yeah.
0: I was like, he's talking to people. He's like an ex-boxer. Mm-hmm. You're like, oh, no, the, the action version of this is like, you crossed my family. And he goes on like a dirty, hairy rampage. Well, if we're talking
1: about family, we got to talk about the movie that also came out this year, The Fast and the Furious, which inspired... <laughs> All the you know, know, this is where it's really all bread and butter here.
0: I guess the Fast and Furious is lucky you didn't watch this movie because then they would just have to talk and inspire people
1: (laughs) and not like get to. But don't you feel like, I mean, if this movie is made in the 70s, Malloy dies. Like, you know, I've heard I've read articles where people are like, oh, it's a cheesy ending. I didn't find the ending to be cheesy. It's a it's it's, um, you know, I just don't I don't understand why those guys leave him alive. I don't understand it. They've killed his brother. Just beat him to death, throw him in the river, and you're done. Like, there is something unbelievable about that, but I do love the powerful uh, shot at the end where you're in his POV and you're seeing him just struggling to walk through that gate. Um,
0: yeah. The way that actually they pulled that off is the cinematographer took his cameraman and spun him in circles. And I was like, go.
1: Oh, wow. <laughs> I love that.
0: But I do love that. And I mean, that's when I can't even think of another POV shot in this movie. Exactly. I was thinking yeah. about
1: that as well. I was like, I wrote that down. I was like, is there another one? And not really. I mean, you have like, you have perspective shots, like seeing his brother hung up on the thing, but this is really like his, his, eye. we are his eyes. Um, Which is so jarring. I mean, this movie is, we talk about the framing, it's a jarring movie. I mean, the angles are really tight on people's faces. You know, you feel like wind is blowing in their hair. They're not necessarily lit perfectly. It's a messy, dirty, it feels like an indie to me. It feels like it's telling the story of an indie. And, you know, the scene that is, the scene that everyone talks about is, you know, I could have been a contender. I could have you know, I mean, do we should we play a bit of that scene? I mean
0: Let's play it. Let's play it and then let's talk about it. And then I want to admit something really dumb, which is I don't think I ever totally noticed the gun in this scene before.
1: Oh wow. And you
2: weighed 168 pounds. You were beautiful. You could have been another Billy Khan.
4: Uh, skunk, we got you for the manager. He brought you along too fast.
5: It wasn't him, Charlie, it was you. You remember that night in the garden, you came down my dressing room and said, kid, this ain't your night. We're going for the price on Wilson. You remember that? This ain't your night. My night, I could have taken Wilson apart. So what happens? He gets the title shot outdoors in a ballpark, and what do I get? A one-way ticket to Pelucaville. You was my brother, Charlie. You should have looked out for me a little bit. You should have taken care of me just a little bit so I wouldn't have to take them dives for the short-end money.
2: Well, I had some bets down for you. You saw some money.
5: You don't understand. I could have had class. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody instead of a bum. This is what I am. Let's face it. I mean, I started that
0: clip with them talking about his weight because I found that so painfully ironic, and how much we we kept talking about Marlon right. Brando's weight, and how much we wanted him to always stay this like slender, beautiful man that he was in, especially in *Streetcar Named Desire*.
1: I mean, do you believe that the weight is also a rebellion against this whole idea of the Hollywood system? Like he, you know, he. I wouldn't say. Be whatever way you are comfortable with. That is fine. But it also feels to me like an act of rebellion at a certain point. You know, and I think some of it was also an act of depression. I think that Marvin Brando is a severely depressed person. But, um, you know, he very kind of quickly kind of breaks the mold of what a traditional leading man looks like. Um, you know, it, it's surprising. It's it, it's And it's, it's bold. I mean, in that way, he's not selling out. Even though he's maybe selling out, he's not selling out. To the like uh, the way that Hollywood wants to see their leading men.
0: That's true. I like that. Like the weight was almost a defense against having to have a six pack like Brad Pitt when you're yeah. in, you know in your fifties. Yeah, be like that's not for me, man. Don't make. Don't put me through those gyms. Don't put me through that diet. You know. So this is the most famous scene in the movie. It's one of the most famous scenes, I would say. Pretty much any movie, I would this say. I'd line. be surprised if people didn't know this scene, even if they'd never seen the movie.
1: Well, I knew the line, right? Yeah. I've never seen this movie. I knew the line. And, you know, and it's funny because where this scene falls in the film, I've had experiences so far in the show where I've seen a famous scene. Like, oh, that's it. Network. I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. I'm like, That's cool. That's a cool scene. This got me. This scene Emotionally work for me. I I knew that line, but the context of it, where it falls in, where it goes, this really tight two shot. It's a very, uh, it's it's a great it's a great scene that even though it's been you know gutted culturally, still holds its own.
0: Right. I mean, without the context of the movie around it. If he just knew this scene as Mm -hmm. the scene, you wouldn't know if he's telling the truth even.
1: Yeah. You might think, like,
0: he's just justifying his own failure.
1: Yes. And here,
0: he's really saying, you ruined my life. It's much more clear in the whole film.
1: And that's why his brother lets him go. I mean, you know, you feel it. You see it on Rod Steiger's face. Rod Steiger, by the way, playing Brando's older brother, despite actually being a year younger than him. He's younger? Yeah. Crazy. Um, And uh, the scene... What I love about it is, yes, we're always focused on Brando. You know, that line, like, you don't understand. I could have had class. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody instead of a bum, which is what I am. A line that ranks third highest on the AFI's list of 100 quotes in film. You know, it's like, it's classic thing. But I have to say, I want to put a little attention and energy on Ron Steiger's performance here because he's not saying much and it's all on his face all he's doing so much emotional internal work here that uh it i think it i think it needs to be kind of respected i think that everything about the scene is brando 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 and it's a beautiful monologue in a movie full of beautiful monologues but man his brother has i think this is the, the the only time we really see his brother like kind of crack
0: yeah. And I think, you know, I mean, Marlon has said a lot of stuff about this scene that many people have learned to take with a bit of a grain of salt mm-hmm. that they had to do it, you know, for 11 hours because Rod Steiger kept crying was his main complaint. And Rod Steiger's like, that's not true. Um He's also complaining about how, you know, if you can see in the back of the car, you just see mini blinds yes. and not a street because they forgot to bring the street projection equipment.
1: And, you know, that literally there was a crew members like I actually came here in a cab that had uh, blinds and because I was like, get me blinds. Yeah,
0: I kind of like the blinds.
1: I love the blinds. It actually makes you feel like they're cut off from the world, like no one can see them in a world in which everyone's watching whatever you yeah. do. Like it makes it feel like this really intimate moment. I, I, I love that.
0: I like that too, but I want to take a listen to a little bit of this interview that Rod Steiger did about this scene
1: oh, because
0: he calls out Brando. I mean, first he pulls out the fact, he calls out the fact that he's always having to talk about this scene. He says this.
2: Sometimes I feel if I see the taxi scene one more time, I'll shoot myself, you know, because this scene has become identified as one of the supposedly great scenes in cinema or something. Well, I hope you don't have a gun because here it comes, the taxi. I scene. had a hunch it might sneak in. I didn't
0: so that they show the scene and then he explains why he feels like brando really did him wrong mm-hmm. in that scene when they shot it
2: uh when i did my close-up but well, we did brando's close-up and i was off camera and when you're off camera working with another actor you do your nut you overdo it to get help them with the reaction and that senior might say i got to tell you something i hate your guts you understand i hate you off-camera to help the actor says, you're no good, you're a stupid, you couldn't act if your life depended on it. How did you get in this film? You know, like that, and acting is reacting, so we're very dependent on each other. And that son of a gun went home when it was time for my close-ups. And I never forgot that. It was a, like a wounding. I couldn't believe a man that talented would walk out And I had to do. Oh, it's the lowest. And I had to do my close up with the stage manager sitting with his script saying. " Uh,
1: So he must have burned his rear end. We came out even in that scene. I mean, that goes back to what you were saying about Marlon Brando being competitive, you know, whether it's James Dean, whether it's, you know, being irritated at Paul Newman. There's a great documentary uh, that was on Showtime called Listen to Me, Marlon, where it's, you know, his diaries and then some are audio diaries and you get to kind of get an insight to him. He's a complicated guy. I mean, we're never going to impact Marlon Brando in this episode, but it is. Well, inter- luckily,
0: we are going to have a lot more Marlon
1: Brando. We yeah. still have
0: Godfather One and we have Streetcar.
1: And we, you know, we already talked about him a little bit in Apocalypse Now, where he's on the other side of this Brando uh, spectrum, where it's. Almost like a magician who knew how to do tricks got so cocky and bored with doing tricks that he's like, why don't you give me the trick as I walk onto set and I'll figure it out as I'm doing it. Like, that's what I kind of feel like a late Brando he's is. like,
0: look, it's a pigeon.
1: Yeah, I mean, look, it's the Brando that in The Island of Dr. Moreau had an earpiece in and was doing his lines because someone was feeding them to him and then would, you know, catch a police scanner and say, like, there's a robbery at a Woolworths and not realize that that was not part of the script because that's how oddly checked out he was. Like, he, that, that that would even... <laughs> Not be a, his character's line.
0: In a movie that was so many great Marlon scenes, one of the things I find really strange and interesting is that, you know, he has that scene with Eva Marie Saint where he's like, I'm gonna tell you my role in your brother's death. And even in the script, it was written so that we don't get to hear it because there's this horn. I blowing.
1: love that. I love that.
4: You honestly <laughs> Sweating God idiot.
0: I mean, I actually like the psychological pressure of that. Yeah. You know, it's so overwhelming if you're on the audience. If if anybody else was listening on headphones, I apologize. Because you really feel whatever she must be feeling on the inside. Yeah. And like the cranking of the machinery behind her.
1: And again, why do we need to hear it? We know what is being said. It's kind of like that. I mean, it's a little different in the sense that the Lost in Translation has that moment where Bill Murray whispers into Scarlett Johansson's ear, We never know. Yeah. (laughs) But we don't know what he's saying, but I love – you can just see people's faces and – I mean, here we know what's going on. But I I, I do like that way of showing a very personal moment between characters without having to worry about the words. The words are not important. It is – What's happening here?
0: I mean, do you like them as a couple? Like, I kind of, I don't know.
1: like They fall into that couple category for me, which is like, are you a couple you just met? Like, you had one date and all of a sudden,
0: yeah.
1: Like I mean, we're breaking up. You're breaking up. You barely were together. Like, yeah. it's like, like you know. It's like I, I don't know. It, it always feels weird. And then I'm like, did they have sex? Did they not have sex? It's another one of those weird movies where he comes and you know breaks down her door, and all he needs to do is give her a kiss because that's what she really wants. She just wants to be kind of mashed up against the wall and get you know. Get slobbered on. Like, that's what, you know.
0: Like, give me away from them nuns. Yeah. I mean, they have such a strange chemistry, I think, in part. Like, the way that, the way that Kazan kind of manipulated it is mm-hmm. that he put her in a room with Marlon Brando uh, where they had a door between them. And he was like, your instruction is that Marlo, Marlon Brando is dating your sister and that you cannot let him get near you and you cannot let him talk you into this room. Oh, and then wow. she was like, I don't know what he told Marlon Brando, but it worked. She was like, for the rest of the movie, I always felt really off balance around him and uncomfortable. And and they have these scenes together, I think, are kind of funny. Like, I love the way in the scene he calls her a fruitcake.
4: What do you really care, am I right? Shouldn't
5: everybody care about everybody else?
4: Oh, what a fruitcake you are.
3: I mean, isn't everybody a a part of everybody else?
4: And you really believe that, Drew?
0: Yes, I do. I mean, he looks at her like she's a space alien, but I find it really sweet.
1: I do, too. I... I like their falling for each other. It works for me. It definitely works for me. I just feel like the emotional crescendo of it seems forced, but this this scene them walking the long walk, the you know, the very famous her glove drops, he puts her glove on his hand like very much like an improvised Marlon Brando moment. And Great. meanwhile,
0: isn't he giving her the OG neg in in the glove scene?
1: Oh yeah, of course. I mean, but that's like that's what's kind of cute about them. They don't, like, he doesn't change for her. Like, he is just this guy. I'm OG neg.
4: You know, I've seen you a lot of times before. Remember a uh, parochial school out of Pelusky Street? Seven, eight years ago, your hair, had your hair, uh... braised. Looked like a hunk of rope. You had wires on your teeth and glasses, and everything. It was really a mess.
0: I can get
3: home all right now, thanks.
4: I don't
5: like, no, get
4: sore, just kidding you a little bit. I just
5: mean to
0: tell you that you blew up very nice. Thanks. And you don't you don't remember me, do you? Remember you the first moment I saw you. Right a nose, huh? That nose, by the way, just felt so a star is born to me. It's well, I mean, so we're weird.
1: talking about noses. We gotta go back to Carl <laughs> Malden. I mean, this is a movie of great noses.
0: Oh god, Carl Malden's nose. I looked it up, he had it broken a bunch when he was a kid.
1: I always remembered him from like those Amex commercials as a kid.
0: You I brought an Amex commercial. Just, oh, I was wondering if to you remembered this. it. All oh, right. I mean
1: that was my I mean that's the only reason why I know who Carl Malden is. Is really? like just because of that. I mean growing up like yeah. i was like that's the guy. He's like hey you know qd you know whatever he would do too like i feel like i feel like he was like also like a jimmy Duranty kind of guy but maybe that's maybe i'm confusing the two of them
3: this man has worked a long hard day and he's got a lot of money to show for it other people's money he's a pickpocket his take seven hundred dollars it's dangerous to carry cash Carry American Express Travelers Checks. If they're lost or stolen, you can get them back. Your vacation is protected. American Express Travelers Checks. Don't leave home without them.
1: <laughs> and I love that he was like working the beat. Like he's a cop at American Express Travelers Check. He's wearing a hat. There's this thing like like you could see that now if that happened, someone would spin it off into like a cop show. The yeah, American Express. Everybody has uh, that
0: face. It's so perfect.
1: Obviously, this movie you know renders a verdict in the courtroom. But it doesn't end there. It goes to the streets. And this is what we were talking about before, this ending. You know, this is an ending. And it's a very, I think, a very Hollywood ending. We talked about this um, on a movie that I think is very realistic throughout. But I don't mind it. It doesn't stick out to me as being too Hollywood in the moment because I think I'm emotionally wrapped up in it. I mean, what do you think about the ending?
0: I mean, I love that the makeup makes them look super battered. Yes. And I love that there's this original one-on-one fight where he maybe could take him, but it is also a clumsy fight. Like he's not the boxer. He no. to No.
1: Yeah. And it's, and it, I love, I love a good clumsy fight. It feels a little bit like Indiana Jones too. It doesn't feel like the way we're watching fights now, where everyone's super choreographed and they've been taking jujitsu for like 10 years.
0: Exactly. But what I really like about it is even before they start throwing blows, the way that Terry publicly just calls out Johnny friendly, the way mm-hmm. he humiliates him and uses the words that certain people don't want to hear describe themselves as like cheap, You know, I love that. Let's listen.
3: Wait a minute, you.
5: You take them heaters away from you and you're nothing. You know that?
0: You talk yourself in the
3: river.
5: You take the good goods away and the kickbacks and the shakedown cabbage and the pistol arrows and you're nothing. Your guts is all in your wallet and your trigger finger. You know that? You ratted on us, Terry. From where you stand, maybe, but I'm standing over here now. I was ratting on myself all them years. I didn't even know it. Come on. (laughs) You give it to Joey, you give it to Dugan, you give it to Charlie, it was one of your own. You think you're God Almighty, but you know what you are? Come on. You're a cheap, lousy, dirty, stinking mug. And I'm glad what I've done to you. you hear that? I'm glad what I've done. And I'm going to keep on doing it until I get you. Come on! Come on! He also
0: gets tripped right there. Yeah. They don't let him have a fair punch in even from the beginning. No,
1: but he does kick the shit out of Johnny. I mean, Johnny looks really beaten. I mean, he looks like he's cut open a little bit.
0: You know, when this movie comes out in 1954, there's a kid who's working, you know, as the assistant manager of a movie theater. Kid, you know, just average kid like nobody else. His name's Jack Nicholson. And this movie's playing and he sits and he watches this movie. Over and over and over and over and over and over really? again. And he just absorbs it. And what Jack Nicholson said later is, you know, that Brando was spellbinding, that he was a genius, and that he thought at the time there'd be no way to follow in his footsteps because he was just too large and just too far out of sight. And then what's sort of amazing is later on when they're both successful, they turn out to be neighbors. They share a driveway in Hollywood. Wow. And they're just like next-door neighbors being kind of wild. You know like Jack Nicholson would like when he died, actually Jack Nicholson bought Marlon Brando's house. And then he was it was so destroyed. There was really nothing he could do with it cuz right. Brando was not the best housekeeper. Like sure, he used sure. the Oscar that he got for this movie as a doorstop Amazing. until somebody stole it. Um he just ended up raising the house and turning it into kind of a garden for Brando's memory.
1: Oh wow. I, is really lovely. I love that. And I feel like, you know, brando begets this next wave of actors many of which we spent uh, a lot of time talking about on this show i mean everybody that we've kind of talked about in the 70s the Daenerys, the pacinos the dustin hoffmans the jack nicholsons and it's interesting that then now they're breeding the next wave and you know you kind of keep on seeing it uh you know just growing and growing and growing and growing amy how is this movie received
0: I mean, everybody liked it. Everybody pretty much liked it. I had a really hard time finding any sort of negative review about it. Mm -hmm. So I wound up all the way over in Cuba. Oh, wow. (laughs) I I found out, I I was reading this magazine called Nuestro Tiempo, Tiempo, which is a magazine started by artistic revolutionaries in Cuba in the early 50s. And, you know, back then it was, you couldn't really make movies so much in Cuba, but these people cared deeply about the arts. And one of the people who wrote film criticism for them was this guy named Tomás Gutiérrez Alía, who people might know as like Titon. He was sort of in that model of like the people in France who were like reviewing movies with the goal of becoming a filmmaker themselves. There just wasn't any option to do that in Cuba. And so he reviewed this movie in, in 1955, in January 1955, and he actually liked it a lot, but he had a point of view coming from the Cuban revolutionary background a proto-revolutionary that I thought was really interesting. He said that even though he liked the film a lot, he called it, quote, a dangerous generalization that the workers submit passively to the situation since the only one capable of reacting and fighting against the union boss is the priest. And so he was worried that it actually might send a bad message to workers, even though it's telling you to rise up. He was af- afraid that it was making them look like, uh eh, you need this priest to bring it over. And also because there was like awkwardness about religion, yeah. of course, in the communist world, hence blah, 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 under God being added to the Pledge of Allegiance. He, I think, took a little bit of prickling umbrage with the idea of the priest as hero. But anyway, it's all very interesting. And then when communism comes in in 59, he actually gets to direct movies, uh, this guy, Thomas Gutierrez-Elia, and he actually gets an Oscar nomination in 1993 for a film called uh, Strawberry and Chocolate.
1: Interesting. Um, so Amy uh it dropped from in the top 10 uh to a little bit lower uh on this list. Uh what do you think? Do you think that that drop was fair?
0: Well, one thing I think is interesting is you know that first list came out in 1997. A lot of things happened in 1997 about Kazan. He mm-hmm. became controversial again. You know, in 1997, the AFI actually considered giving him a lifetime achievement award, an honorary award. Mm-hmm. It was Carl Malden who who presented the idea. He's like, "What if we gave him an award?" And the AFI voted no. Um, and also that year, you know, the group I'm in, Lafka, the LA Film Critics Association, we every year give an honorary award to somebody, like a lifetime achievement award, and we voted no, and because uh-huh. we actually give it to Corman instead, and okay. it was because of the politics, and it with this kind of double no really put Kazan back in newspapers. You know, people were giving like opinions about it, pro con. What are we gonna do? You know, and the former president or the former vice president of Lafka, he actually said, listen. When you're honoring someone's entire career, you are honoring the totality of what he represents. And Kazan's career post-1952 was built on the ruin of other people's careers. Ironically, Kazan's films become richer and were more morally complex after he informed, but to give our highest award to him would be ignoring a serious moral issue. We would be passively saying we don't care if people inform on their colleagues. And I wonder if this being in papers chipped away a little bit about it. You know, in right. 99, he does get an honorary Oscar and some people clap, some people sit on their hands. Hmm. I wonder if that's the little bit of tinging that you see on somebody that lowers him on the list. By the way, when it actually gets the honorary Oscar, that's again, Carl Malden. Carl Malden was like, brought it up to the committee. They actually voted yes. He asked Brando if Brando would give him the award and Brando said no because he was mad at him for ratting.
1: It's interesting, you know, especially in the culture that we're living in right now uh, with the idea of separating the art from the artist. And this is a, in a way, slightly an easier conversation to have for someone who has a different political leaning. You know, it doesn't seem as severe as someone who is accused of uh, sex crimes or, uh, you know, murder. You know, or just being a creepo. You know, um, being a creepo. You know, it's because it becomes a little bit more like, well, what is that? How do I feel? It's interesting that this also provokes that same response. I, I think you know, my theory off the bat is, who cares? Like, the movie's great. And you know what, he spoke out, and he was wrong. And that was dumb. But, you know, doesn't seem to make that big of a difference. But I I also didn't live through it. You know, and, and you talk about a list of people who were affected by this, had friends affected by this. And you can see that emotional resonance. And I think, you know, If anything, that's how I think culture will start to decide these cases. How do you separate the art from the artist? Because I think as you get further away from the activity, the art starts to either stay or go under, you know? Yeah. I don't know if that's a good or bad thing. I'm just saying that it's interesting to talk about in this context. This feels like the safer context to talk about that idea. It's true.
0: And, you know, know, I've been thinking a lot about this question of, like, do I even have the right to judge Kazan, Mm -hmm. you know? am I to judge Kazan? Are are any of us better, honestly? Because you know, that's where I always go with things. I'm like, could any of us say for sure we wouldn't do the same thing? And you know, if you bring this story up into the the real world, I mean, I'm definitely guilty of, I've seen people that I know and care about get railroaded on Twitter and I don't jump up to defend them because I'm like, Twitter's just, I don't want to even open the door, you know? So like, I'll see somebody whose review gets misconstrued and Mm -hmm. everybody's jumping on them and most of us don't step up, which makes me think like, I'm who knows? I don't want to I don't want to say that I could be better than Kazan. I don't think that would be fair of me to say that.
1: But Kazan stepped up for something he thought was right at that time. And, you know, there's a lot of people that, you know, whether you can go to the vote for invading Iraq, you know, at the time, people thought that was right. But yet that's now a clarion call to be like, You voted for a fake war. It's like, well, I don't think the people knew it was a fake war at that point. You know, there might have been a theory, but there is, you know, fake information. There's a lot of things to put into context. I think this one's a a murkier subject because it's not like he was a communist and he acted against America. He didn't commit a crime. He did something that he thought was right. And, uh, and it was socially, uh, looked down upon and to a certain group of people, namely artists who put all these things in, uh, in lists and, and moving around. I don't know. It's just an interesting way mm-hmm. to talk about it. Like I mean, can, I just
0: think all of us would be better if we had a little bit more empathy for everyone.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, there's there's a lot of great art to celebrate and, you know, and just because somebody is a bad person doesn't mean that they can't make something that you enjoy too. I mean that and that's a and that's a tricky thing. But I think it's good to talk about it all. And this is fascinating to find out about him. As far I mean,
0: as Malden, like Malden to maybe to give Maldon the final word on it, because like, he's the guy who was there. He's mm-hmm. the guy who knew everybody. He had known Kazan forever before this. I mean, to him in the present day, when in when 1999 he was talking about Kazan finally getting like this honorary Oscar, he really put the blame squarely on politics, which is, I think, where it belongs. You know, he was like... If politics had not broken apart, say Arthur Miller and Kazan, what could they have accomplished? You know, the theater suffered, people suffered, and they suffered because of politics, not because of the actions of the individuals. And I think I like his framing of it that way.
1: Yeah, I I do too. I mean, does it belong in the top ten? I don't think it belongs in the top ten, but it does represent a very big change in the way that we, you know, um, approach acting and and drama. And so in that way, I can see why it should be in the top ten. It doesn't feel. Like, I need it there, but I, I like it in the top 20. I definitely like it in the top 20. I think it is an important movie to be up there. And I think this is one of those films, like Lawrence of Arabia, which we talked about last week, which is not often sought out. I don't think that people go to see this movie. I think if you were to say, Streetcar or this, people would pick Streetcar 99% of the time. But this is one of those films that I feel like, if you've not seen it, it's definitely worth watching, because I think it is uh, it's incredibly engaging. Really beautifully acted, wonderfully directed, and uh, and shot. I, I'm, I'm a I'm a fan.
0: And yet, there really isn't The Simpsons.
1: Oh wow! I mean, maybe
0: people could find it. I couldn't really yeah. find one. What I did well, yeah. what instead was I sort of pieced together two things that I thought were vaguely thematically Simpsons.
1: There's not a I could have been a contender on could the Simpsons. Could not find one.
0: Could not find one. So maybe in the way that On the Waterfront is thematically about Hueck and yeah. communism. These two clips I pulled are thematically There's people have seen on the waterfront even though it's not in there. The first one I pulled is a clip about Mr. Burns talking about, in, a, in an episode called Springfield with an S dollar sign talking about his childhood on the waterfront beating up Irish people.
5: We're thrilled you've decided to build your casino on our waterfront. Oh, I'll never forget my carefree boyhood days on this old boardwalk. <laughs> Who are you? Oh, Master Burns! I mean
3: carry on! Ah! No. Oh. Ah, me
5: so in a way, there's
1: right. a bit about, a bit right. about sure, the rich sure. reaching, corrupting reaching, and hurting reaching. People, sure. people, sure, the, sure. the
0: poor working Irish, what on the waterfront. And then the next clip I pulled is from the Simpsons episode, The Homer They Fall. This is where Homer becomes a boxer under the tutelage of Moe. And Moe explains that Moe used to be a boxer.
2: You used to be a boxer just like me? Yup. They called me Kid Gorgeous. Later on it was Kid Presentable. Then Kid Gruesome. And finally Kid Moe. Hey, what's this? Ah, that's my old spit bucket. Yeah, I've been meaning to empty that out. (laughs) You know Lucius Sweet? He's one
3: of the biggest names in boxing. He's exactly as rich and as famous as Don King. And he
2: looks just like him too. Yeah, he was my manager. Back when I was gorgeous, everybody wanted a piece of me. But somehow I just never made it to the big time. Why not? Because I got knocked out 40 times in a row. That plus politics. You know, it's all politics. Lousy Democrats.
0: You know, to make it up to people that I do not have a proper, proper, proper Simpsons clip, did you know that Marlon Brando was basically a real-life Bart Simpson? No. Yeah. When he was a kid, he got in serious trouble at school because he went to the blackboard. And you know how Bart is always on the blackboard? He took chemicals and he wrote the word shit in big letters. (laughs) So there we go. But he
1: didn't write it like a hundred times.
0: No, I mean, he's, he's lazy.
1: All right, it's Paul back alone in the studio. Next week, we will be watching North by Northwest, starring the star of this film, Eva Marie Saint and Cary Grant. It is the third time we've done a Hitchcock on this show. And I am starting to wonder... What is your favorite Alfred Hitchcock film? This is definitely one of my favorites. It's one of the ones I saw earliest and one that kind of has the biggest lasting impression on me. I remember the set pieces. I love the acting in it. I love the costumes. So I want to know, what is your favorite favorite Hitchcock. Have we talked about it? Have we not talked about it? Well, we never talk about it. We have one left. It's Rear Window. So let us know what your favorite Alfred Hitchcock film is. Maybe it's Family Plot. Maybe it's Marnie. I don't know. Let us know what your favorite film is and why it is your favorite film. You can give us a call at our hotline. That's right. 747-666-5824. 747-666-5824. What's your favorite Hitchcock movie? Why do you like it so much? Watch North by Northwest, and we're going to get into it next week in a really fun episode. We'll see you next week with Amy and me for North by Northwest.